podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Red Inca. I'm Jared Kimber. This podcast has adverts, but if you prefer your podcast without, in the show notes you'll see the link to my Patreon page and you can listen to our chats uninterrupted. Patreon also comes with many other benefits as well, including a Discord channel and private chats with me. But now, the show. This episode of Writing, can we talk about the rise of Scottish cricket? And to do so, we have a co-author of a new book on that very team who also happens to host a podcast also on that very team. I'm Jake Perry. I'm a writer for Cricket Scotland, amongst others, author of a couple of books now, The Secret Game and uh, Playing With Teeth that's just about to come out in June. We talk about the 2015 World Cup, Kaizen Principles, 2016 World Cup, peer reviews, Ireland, and what it meant for Scotland to do so well in this last World Cup. Let's start with Scottish cricket. So I think after 1999 World Cup, that was the last time that I had a real strong opinions on the Scottish team until 2015. And things changed for me when I looked at my Crick info schedule and realized I was going to be at about three or four Scottish games. I was like, I better learn something about their cricket here quite quickly. That World Cup, I actually thought they did okay. There was talented players there, but there was a bit of chaos around. I forget the name of the chairman slash CEO who wore the tartan trousers and uh, went to all the events who probably will never speak to me again after the way I wrote about him. But there were certainly talented cricketers at that point, but it felt like it was a very amateur Scottish team. Is that fair to say? To some extent. I think what we're seeing in 2015 actually is a hugely significant moment in the development of the team. The trajectory, really, that the book is describing, that Gary Heatley, uh, who's my co-writer and myself, wanted to, to talk about was that as I say, that that trajectory from around about 2014, maybe slightly earlier than that, when there was a real sense of a change in the the mindset, the culture around the team almost. It's interesting that you're starting with 2015. We've got a core of players there who are very similar to the the core of players that are still within the, the team now, but the results are very, very different. And what 2015 did, it was the first tournament that Grant Bradburn was in charge. He'd, he'd taken over kind of back end of, of 2014 and had started to bring about this, this change in approach, this change in mindset of the team, driven by the Kaizen principle, which is what's at the, the root of Grant's philosophy and what in many ways is at the root of, of the story of the book, this idea of, of continual improvement. And when we look at the 2015 tournament, we see the team starting to embrace that change and starting to to see that change in action. I think that perhaps Kyle Kutzer is, is a great example of this, of this journey. And if we look at Kyle's performance in, in 2015, I mean, he went into the tournament, the ODI record, hardly shabby. And in the game against England in particular, he played a really fine inning, 71 not out, as Scotland chased unsuccessfully uh, England's total of 300-odd. Of and he came off the field and uh, and said to me that, you know, he was relatively pleased. He felt he'd done, he'd done his job, relatively pleased with how things had gone. And that the reaction he got from Grant 
was we, we were in a position there where we could potentially have won the game. You know, if you had stayed in a little bit longer, if you had got to 100 playing low-risk cricket, we'd have been in a position where we could perhaps have kicked on. And Kyle said it was the first time that he really thought about, I guess, the difference between, between expectation and genuine belief. Everybody goes into a tournament saying, oh, yeah, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. We believe in ourselves. We're going to compete. And I remember before the England game, Paul Collingwood, who was with the squad again at that time, had been very, really bullish about Scotland's chances. This was an England team, of course, that was coming in on the back of two real maulings at the hands of Australia and New Zealand. So we're there, if if not for the taking, we're there as good an opportunity as Scotland were to get to beat them in a major tournament, perhaps. And as I say, Paul had, had talked about, you know, the winners around the corner and we believe in ourselves. But Kyle said that what Grant had said to him after his innings made him really think, you know, did we genuinely think that we could win? You know, we like to think that we can, or we like to think that we did. But was that belief absolutely genuine? And he'd started then to question his own approach, his own philosophy, if you like, I, I guess, around batting. And then we saw a couple of games later against Bangladesh, that incredible innings that he that scored 156, still the record by an associate player at a, at a World Cup and uh, likely to be for some time to come, of course, with the way things are at the moment. And just really freed him up, I guess, to to attack, to to express himself, that that dreadful expression that, that people often use about, you know, expressing yourself on the field, whatever that means. And I guess that tournament was the start of, of the team seeing things like that. Callum McLeod told me how, you know, he saw that innings that Kyle played and thought, wow, that's the standard. That's where we need to be. And in many ways then, that 2015 World Cup, the performances that we, that we saw from Scotland within there, the flashes of brilliance that we saw, exemplified by Kyle in that that innings against Bangladesh, allied to the fact that it was the first run of matches that Scotland had had against a full member for some considerable time, showed them where the bar was. And so many times players and, and, and Grant, when I spoke to them, talked about 2015 as showing them where that standard was that allowed them to measure themselves to where they have to be. And of course, we see what happened in relation to that subsequently. Yeah, when I said there was semi-amateur, I kind of meant that I thought the players were coming together and thinking about it as a professional team. And outside of the coaching staff, uh, you know, I spent a bit of time, I think I interviewed Grant once or twice on that tour, but it felt like there was a bit of a boys on tour vibe from some other people involved with Scottish cricket there. And there's a bit of a I mean, I think you'll understand what I mean here, but I'll explain this in case anyone else doesn't. It felt like to me there was a very Scottish cricket vibe coming through, that there was that sort of old posh people like to be involved with the game of cricket, liked it to be a very amateur game because that allowed them to be involved in it. And there was almost a tussle between them and what Grant was trying to do on the field, which was trying to turn them into a essentially no different than a franchise that he had worked with in South Africa or any other professional cricket team around the world. And that wasn't traditionally how Scottish cricket had been. Scottish cricket had been stronger than Irish cricket, but maybe not traditionally very... Uh, they hadn't looked forward. They'd been happy with what they'd done. And there's something that you wrote about in the book. I think it was a quote from someone, but I haven't marked down who it was, but the almost victories. 
which is something that me and Preston talked about after that last game. I remember I'd already written my piece by this point, and he, he basically in the bar made me read out my entire piece off the top of my head to him. And we're talking about the almost victories, and I felt that that's where Scottish cricket was at that point, in that sort of almost victory middle ground of, we have good cricketers, and we're going to have some good days, and look at us, we're here. And that's what Grant and certainly Kyle and Preston, I suppose, at that point, were trying to move them all away from and be like, no, we can be much more than this. Yeah, to some extent. Yeah. And and that's why, I mean, the subtitle of the book is relates to or, or refers to the, the concept of glorious failure, which is not something that I was thinking of specifically in terms of the cricket team per se. You know, the cricket team had always punched at or even slightly above its weight, you know, in the mid-2000s, held both ICC associate trophies simultaneously. But there's a sort of a culture, a mindset around Scottish sport about the almost win. And I don't know whether that has lowered expectations as a whole around Scottish sport. I mean, when we see... You know, if you if you Google the term glorious failure, you'll come up with references to Scottish sport first and foremost, usually in relation to Scotland football team. So we talk about, for example, in 1974 Football World Cup, Scotland, the only team to be eliminated, having not lost a game. 1978, lost to Peru, drew with Iran, amazing victory over Holland, who were probably the best team in the world at that time, but went home anyway. There's this this whole kind of narrative, if you like, of glorious failure. And I wonder whether that has become something of a safety net, a cushion to hide behind almost, that, uh, yeah, we gave it a good go, we gave it our best shot, but we didn't quite get there in the end, and that that was almost good enough. And yeah, and a couple of the, the people I interviewed talked about that. Certainly the almost victories was the great motivator in the end that was the catalyst that showed the team, look, we've got to change, we've got to change this, particularly in 2015 and then the 2016 World T20. And I guess the message behind the story is that this was a team that was not prepared to to follow that narrative anymore of the kind of the Braveheart cliches and the, the plucky Scots and the yeah, giving it a go, but not quite getting there. They were wanting to stand up and say, no, 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 this is not good enough for us. We want more. And as you say, and, and in Grant and in Preston and later Kyle, and in the changes that then started to happen behind the scenes, led by Malcolm Cannon, the CEO of the time, and Tony Bryan, the chair of Cricket Scotland. Yeah, we saw that change in culture filter through the whole organisation mm. from the team if you like, downwards or sideways or however you want to put it. <laughs> I think that for me was the bigger move because I don't think there are many places in the world that don't have talented cricketers, especially when they have as many yeah. club cricketers as Scotland does. You can have a golden generation where you have a bit of success, but unless the board get involved, but we'll come to that in a bit. I want to talk about specifically what Grant did. And I've talked to some of the players about similar things, of course, in my role. One of the things that you talked about here was the peer review system which is really, really interesting, where players would literally review each other's play. That was Grant Bradburn's idea, was it? Yeah, as I say, that Grant's driven by the Kaizen principle. I mean, he he actually put it to me, or said, uh, when I, I spoke to him about it for the book, he said, well, I'm, I'm loath to call it Kaizen. It's not something that he talked about particularly, or used the term particularly with the players, but it's the commitment to to continual improvement. So, you know, the, the, the basic principles of, of, of teamwork, of self-discipline, of, of trying to get those incremental 
1% improvements every day that started off as a, a concept with, the, I think, the Toyota Motor Company in, in Japan, you know, started as a, as, a, as a concept. And amongst it is this whole idea of empowerment and of, of sharing ideas for improvements. And one thing that Grant uh, said after the, the 2016 World T20 was, look, you know, we've got to find a way of transferring the ownership of this onto the the players. It's all very well me as a coach saying we've got to express ourselves, we've got to be much more aggressive, we've got to do this or that. It has to come from the players themselves and, and that culture has to be built from within the player group itself. And so, yes, as, as you say, peer review was, was part of that, uh, you know, a willingness to ask uncomfortable questions and be told uncomfortable answers. You know, Kyle talked about uh, the bowlers, for example, being very open about what they think when they're bowling at me. Some of those messages won't necessarily be comfortable, but there were things that in a kind of open environment where everybody was on the same page and with the same goal in mind and of the same mindset, it's the way of, of moving everybody forward. It's, it wasn't about pointing the finger. It was about looking inwards and finding, yeah, those, those 1% improvements to make you better than you were yesterday. Yeah, I, I mean, that was something I found when I worked with them, that they were very good at communicating amongst themselves. Obviously, by the time I was there, Grant had left and I, and I was working with Shane Berger, but it was something that I noticed. But it's also something that, especially in associate cricket, and you look at the Netherlands is a very good example of this. They basically had Peter Boren, who was essentially a coach for the last five or six years. You say a similar thing with Ireland and Trent Johnson. There aren't a million coaches around. And outside of the top level of cricket, the coaching is even lower and it's even more amateur, even if the talent is still there. In associate cricket, if you are not very good at understanding your own problems and being able to fix them and being able to deal with them as a unit and as an individual, it doesn't matter. Now, realistically, most professional athletes should be better at this anyway. And it comes back to, you know, the overcoaching that we talk about and, and, and all these sorts of things that, that happen in professional sport. But on a very basic level in associate cricket, Grant's whether he knew this or not, but his his general thinking was almost perfect for a period of Scottish cricket where you had a lot of players who were actually quite smart. I mean, I always talk about Callum McLeod. What a phenomenal career he had. He started as a 90-mile-an-hour bowler and has ended up as a number four batter. Like, that's not a natural thing to have happen. There's a lot of very intelligent cricket thinking within that change room. So to be able to empower them seems like a very important thing. And the other thing that they did that you talked about was that they all had their own document which highlighted the areas that they needed to work on. It's all well and good saying these things. And I've been in so many team meetings where coaches have said these really good things. I'm like, yeah, but who's following up with the player? Who's going up to the player the next day when they haven't done that and saying, well, on this piece of paper, you said you weren't going to do this anymore and you have done this. What do we need to do here? All those little things were so important for this team. Yeah, absolutely right. And bearing in mind as well, in terms of game time, the amount of time that Scotland, any associate team has, is very, very limited. And it's improving now. Cricket World Cup League 2 has, has been a, a huge kind of benefit for that. But certainly when we're looking back at, we'll take 2018, for example, the summer when Scotland beat England, Scotland had 10 days of cricket in the entire summer. So everything has to be, or each one of those games rather, are worth so much more. Everything has to be learned within those games. And in a tournament like 2015 again, it's a, an amazing opportunity of an extended run of matches against full member opposition to see exactly 
where that standard is, as, as, as I was saying before, and, and, and to really use that to inform everything that then happened subsequently. It's why, you know, looking just a, a few months ago at the Super 12 at the T20 World Cup, that's a similar position. The last time Scotland had played a top 10 full member in a T20 had been, uh, 2018, had been two days after they played England in the ODI, played Pakistan in two T20s. Scotland hadn't played them since, hadn't played a, a full member of that standard since. So it was a huge learning experience. And again, it's reset the bar. It's shown where that standard is now in T20 cricket in particular, which is so driven by the developments in franchise cricket and so on too. So it's informed the next stage of the journey, the next book along the way. So yeah, I mean, it's, so it's about making the most of everything that Scotland has, whether it's game time, whether it's training time, training smart. You know, another thing that Grant was always talking about was training as we need to play. So creating scenarios, whatever it may be, because if you're not doing it in the training ground, well, why are you going to do it in a game? Scotland doesn't have the luxury of a lot of matches where it can try things out and mm. can play around with lineups playing cricket where there's not really very much consequence, as is the case with most full-member cricket. And so they have to make the most of the opportunities that they get. So we've talked about on-field, and that clearly under Grant change, and then you know Shane Berger is probably a different kind of coach, but in some ways very similar sort of person. I, I assume that's part of the reason he was probably chosen as well. But off the field, <laughs> so 2015 World Cup, Literally, you could not talk to anyone in Scottish cricket without them moaning about Irish cricket. And it was sort of twofold. One, they were saying, well, we weren't any worse than them, and suddenly we are. And the other one was that they got their act together off the field, and we haven't yet. And that was the consistent thing I was told by fans of Scottish cricket, players, coaches, everyone was saying the same sort of thing of, we need to be more professional off the field. I ask you, as someone who's now done this history of Scottish cricket, do you think that if Ireland hadn't had that incredible bump and then been on the road to being a test-playing nation, would Scotland have even made this change? Was this a, almost a competitive of, wait a minute, we were neck and neck with this team for eight in front, not even neck and neck, they were a better team than Ireland for a good period of time. And suddenly Ireland is the, everyone loves Irish cricket and people are wearing, you know, buying green jerseys and everyone's forgotten about Scotland since the 99 World Cup. Do you think Ireland played a part in Scotland getting more professional? Uh, I'm sure they did, Yeah. The big difference between Irish cricket and Scottish cricket, putting aside golden generations and all of that kind of thing, was that Ireland had those high-profile victories on the global stage. And that was the major difference in the profile of the, the relevant or the respective men's teams. That Ireland had that win over England and had that win over Pakistan that could be pointed to as, you know, we belong here and we've shown that we can do it on the global stage. And Scotland is now at that stage where the opportunities to do so at a World Cup are, of course, shrinking. The 10-team World Cup, which will still be in place in 2023, of course, is a massive handicap to that, to Scotland's ability to do that. The playing field, ironically, is so much more level in ODI cricket than it is now in T20 cricket because of the influence of the franchise leagues, first and foremost, I would say, and the skill development that is taking place there that, that associate players simply don't have access to. 
which is why it's so important that we look at that, that we look at how associate players can get involved, how the ICC can assist associate players in getting involved in some of these franchise leagues, perhaps. And so, yeah, I mean, that's the big difference, I guess, between the two teams. Ireland peaked at just the right time, you could say, in that it was in a World Cup environment that gave them the opportunity to put in the fantastic performances that they did. And yes, as you say, they had the structure in place and the ability to, to, to make that step up to full member status. And they were fortunate that Afghanistan was in the position as well. Mm. The ICC obviously were keen that Afghanistan was elevated and couldn't really do it without elevating Ireland as well, I think was, was maybe part of it too. So I think, I mean, full member status, the achievement of full member status is front and centre of Scotland's aims right now. You know, that was was really started really with Malcolm Cannon, uh, that, mm. uh, look, you know, we need to get the structures in place. We need to unlock the funding that, that full member status will bring and all of the benefits that that will bring to Scottish cricket. But uh, the achievement of full member status is, is still part of the journey. It's not seen as the ultimate goal and somehow then yeah. achievement unlocked and we can all relax. It's seen as part of the incremental steps of the journey that Scottish cricket is uh, is still on. Well, I, I remember in 2015 when I chatted to the Scottish chairman at the time and three years prior, I talked to Warren Dutram and the levels of which Warren Dutram was thinking about Ireland's place in cricket, what they needed to do and how they needed to achieve it. And, you know, I think Richard Holdsworth, I might've talked to him at a similar time. And then you went back to Scottish cricket and you're like, you guys are just playing cricket. There was no clear thing. So the, the change between that and Malcolm Cannon taking over, one of the other things that you talk about is they went out of their way to get younger board members. My wife, I think, actually applied to be one of the board members at the time. It was years before I was involved with Scottish cricket. And that was a big play, wasn't it? They wanted to get people who were thinking ahead rather than what Scottish cricket had been before, which was a very insular sort of older gentleman's club. Yeah, I mean, Malcolm said that part of the drive was for some younger board members. He said not because they were younger as such, but more for diversity of thought. And he said he wanted the board to move away from the obsession with the cricket side of the business, if you want to put it that way, that perhaps previously you had board members who were very close to the Scottish game, who were very much involved in the Scottish game with their clubs and and, and so on. Mm. And he said, and by taking a step back from that almost, by having board members who were involved, who maybe didn't have such an understanding and investment in the minutiae of the, the cricketing side of it all, were better placed to look at the whole thing commercially. Because, of course, I mean, the big thing that Scottish cricket has to do, it still has to do, to develop is to become more financially self-sufficient, more financially astute in terms of the gaining of sponsorship, of development of facilities, and, and all of that. All of that will cost a lot of money. And it's about getting mm. someone on board or, or, or getting uh, whatever sponsorship can be acquired to make that happen. So those changes that Malcolm was bringing in was certainly part of that process to move it away from perhaps a board more obsessed with the, the minutiae of the cricketing performances on the field and, and all that kind of thing and look at the more global picture of the organisation as a whole and how best to bring that forward and to put that into the, the best possible position, certainly with regard to looking for full member status, ultimately. 
And also, there was an audit, wasn't there, done by Sports Scotland, I think, which didn't suggest that Scottish cricket was run particularly well at that point. Uh, Sports Scotland do an audit every four years, I think. I think it is, and uh, yes, and and I think Cricket Scotland was the only organisation to have failed it outright. In I think it was not long after Malcolm took over. Malcolm was in no way critical of the previous board at all. He said it was just a sense that that board had grown up with Scottish cricket in quite a different position. It was when the team was still playing in the English, the CB40 or the various incarnations of the Sunday League game, was in a much more sort of solid financial footing. That had obviously gone, that had been taken away. And it was almost like the board didn't quite know how to react to the financial challenges that it was then in. And in terms of the audits, there were some things that were quite simple to put right, uh, apparently little issues of governance and and all that kind of thing. But Malcolm set about sort of getting that on, on an even footing again. And in six months, you know, it had been turned around to satisfactory, which is the highest rating of the audit from, from unsatisfactory to these various things. But satisfactory is as good as you can get. And they achieved that. So... <laughs> I think the what if of the Scotland-Bangladesh game in the 99 World Cup kind of hung over Scottish cricket for a long time. It probably always will because it would have fast-tracked them above yeah. so many other teams and, and they, wouldn't have had to, they wouldn't have had to go through the aim of trying to become a test-playing nation. They probably just would have become a test-playing nation around that point. Some of that, when they beat England in 2018, goes away. But from someone who's written the book on Scottish cricket now and has gone through it, what did it mean for them to make the final round of the last T20 World Cup? For me, from afar, someone who worked with them, you know, it was quite emotional. But what does it mean for Scottish cricket to be in the finals? Or are we calling it the finals? It's not the finals, is it? In the proper tournament, you know, and playing cricket. It must be a fairly big deal for Scottish cricket. Yeah, absolutely. You say emotional. Yeah, it was a really emotional occasion because it's the point at which the book ends, of course, referring back to the book again, because in many ways it sort of closes that chapter of the the journey of the team through England to where it is now. And it's the point, as I was saying before, with the Scotland's experience in the Super 12 and seeing where that bar is now, it starts the next chapter. To go from a position where Scotland had 20 World Cup losses in succession, going back from 99 through to Hong Kong, which is the first win in 2016, World T20. A game that was bittersweet in many ways because of the almost victories that had gone just before it against Afghanistan and Zimbabwe, two games that that Scotland held winning positions but couldn't get over the line. And to go from there to see just how far this team has come from that 2016 victory to where it is now, to beating Bangladesh, not only just beating Bangladesh, but the manner in which Scotland did so at the first round of the T20 World Cup just gone. A team that were six down with not many on the board, but there was no sense of panic. You know, I talked to Chris Greaves in the book, who's, of course, the man of the match there. He said, you know, he and Mark Watt, when they were batting, or, or just be- actually Chris said just before he went in, there was no sense of panic on the bench, as it were. He came in and was joined by Mark Watt not long after, and they just still went to play their shots, went to attack, went to take the game to Bangladesh. A Scotland team in the not-so-distant past wouldn't have done that, would have imploded, perhaps, having lost 
so many wickets so cheaply. And to get a total on the board and then to defend it in the way that they did, really strangling Bangladesh in those early overs. And then at the end, Safian Sharif holding his nerve in that final over as he did against England to bring it home. I mean, it was a hugely impressive win. And and Shane said to me that it's almost in many ways more special than the England win in that the England game, we had 300 and whatever, played 300 and whatever. It was a high-scoring game of modern mm. cricket where we had two teams absolutely at their peak battering each other effectively. And then against Bangladesh... Scotland weren't at their best by a long way, but still had the nerve and the ability to get over the line. It was a hugely, hugely impressive performance and a hugely emotional occasion as well. And then to follow it up against PNG and then against Oman, which was a, again, in the context of famous Scottish glorious failures, well, here was the story ready to be written by the headline writers, you know, fall at the final hurdle, whatever it will be. But again, from the moment of that run out in the first over, it was never in doubt that Scotland were going to get themselves to the to the Super 12 and to to do it in some style. To qualify for the second phase for the first time, to do it in the style in which they did it, though, just shows just how far this team has come. Now, this is your second book, but you didn't write this one on your own, did you? No, no, not at all. Um, so Gary Heatley, who is uh, my colleague with Cricket Scotland, we, we do a lot of uh, the content for Cricket Scotland over over the course of the summer. So we've, we've worked very closely together for a number of years now. And uh, I sort of got in touch with Gary over lockdown. It, was, it began as a lockdown project, of course, like so many other things did. So got in touch with Gary to see if he wanted to come on board and, and join me. Having kind of lived the story for so long, the two of us in real time, it was nice to be able to sort of put it all down on paper together. And because Cricket Scotland has changed so much and, and the Scottish team has changed so much, were you careful about respecting what had happened before? Because you're you you know you're a historian who's looked at Scottish cricket well before this modern surge. And you and I both know that there are many talented cricketers that Scotland had had in previous generations who just didn't have the backing that Callum McLeod and Mark Watt get. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's why, you know, as I was saying before, very careful to put this in its proper historical context. This is talking about the the evolution of the of the side from that particular point in in 2013 through to through to where it is now. But you know, Scotland, as I say, had punched above its weight for a long time as an associate team, you know, great team in the in the 2000s led by Craig Wright, of course, who is uh, back in the fold as as uh, Schoenberg's assistant coach now, you know, with some Absolutely phenomenal cricketers with Fraser Watts and with Paul Hoffman and, you know, many, many great, great names. They held the Intercontinental Cup and the ICC Trophy in the mid-decade. And, of course, Scotland had only been an associate member in its own right since 1995, too, because uh, it had been part of the, what would have been the TCCB then, I guess, beforehand, and, and then took membership in its own right in 1995. So the history of the national side, although Scotland had played international cricket since 18, whatever it was, the history of the national side as an independent entity is a fairly recent one, you know, that it's had access to World Cups and been able to qualify for World T20s. That's only happened since 95. And that's why the qualification for the World Cup in 99 was a phenomenal achievement for what was essentially an amateur side. You know, there were a couple of players based with counties, Gavin Hamilton, of course, very notably, and John Blaine. But you had essentially a group of amateur cricketers 
And that's, uh, you know, carried on really through the decades. Central contracts are only a relatively recent thing. And so we've got a tremendously proud history of of some phenomenal players who have represented Scotland and uh, gone on to represent England as well, of course, in, in, in Gavin's case, for example. And so, so yeah, it's, it's very important that this isn't seen as um, somehow devaluing the achievements of what has gone before. It's a story in the historical context of this team and the journey that this team has been on and, and what is a, a success story in Scottish sport, which, as I say, has so often had this narrative of, of the almost win and uh, the glorious failure. And it was to, uh, yeah, to try to talk about that aspect. No, it's great. And also just to go back on, on Scottish cricket as well, you know, you've got players like Ian Peebles from, from the past, so, you know, S- Scottish cricketers who represented England, probably one of their last ever leg spinners <laughs> up until Adil Rashid and, and Ian Salisbury and those sorts of guys. So name of the book and where can people get it? So it's called Playing With Teeth, How Scotland's Cricketers Broke the Cycle of Glorious Failure. And it's published by Pitch Publishing. It's out on June the 20th, but is available for pre-order at Amazon and WH Smiths and all the usual outlets. Beautiful. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Jared, thank you very much indeed. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening. There is more information on my guests in the show notes. Please support them where you can, but also support us. If you can't help out on Patreon, every single review, share, or word of mouth suggestion to your friend helps us. However, this podcast is made available by the people who support us at Patreon, so thank you to all of those who do. There is a link to the Patreon in the show notes. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes the best audio anyone can from random Zoom calls. Makunja Banredi is in charge of our video side. Orijati Senpathy turns the files into video podcasts, and Shivanka Patacharya makes our graphics. Our theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Crickets.